Well, you are probably familiar with the old saying that a good pastor will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And uh, we've actually done some comforting of the afflicted the last week and a half or so. We've had three folks in our body slip into eternity and go be with Jesus. And uh, we need to keep their families in our prayers. Uh, today I'd like to afflict the comfortable a little bit with a sermon of affliction. Woohoo! Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> And uh, I want you to know that my intentions for you are only good and loving. Um, It is a loving thing to lovingly share the truth with people, and uh, that is my my hope today. The reason I know I'm speaking the truth is because I'm simply going to repeat some of the words of Jesus Christ, who is the truth, who was and is and will be the truth. Everything he said was true. So are you ready for this? Take the study guide out of your bulletin, and I'd like you to read aloud with me some of his words from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verses in verse 21. Let's read aloud together. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. To me, these are some of the most haunting, upsetting words in all of Scripture. And there's a part of me that doesn't like them. that wishes that Jesus had never said these words. But it doesn't matter what I like or don't like, they're true. And Jesus said them, and we need to take them to heart. And I think what we see is Jesus saying several things here. First, he's saying that there's coming a day of final reckoning, of final judgment. That day is coming. Many believe that he was referring to the great white throne judgment on that day, he says. And on that day, a final determination is going to be made of who among us gets into the kingdom of heaven and who does not. That will be determined on that day. And it says that many people, that's kind of haunting to me, many people who fully expected to be ushered into heaven will instead find that the door is barred and they will be forbidden from entrance. These people knew who Jesus was. Lord! They respected him, Lord. And it even says that they claim to have done some supernatural things in his name. But they will experience their worst nightmare come true. They will be shocked and surprised to discover that even though they thought they were saved, even though they believed that they were born again, they're not. And they will miss eternity They will be forever banished from the presence of Jesus Christ. Away from me, he says. These are sobering, disturbing words, aren't they? They should rattle us a little bit. They should put the fear of God in us a little bit. They should cause us to be in awe of our great Creator God. So you hear these words and you think, well, fearing God... 
What about God is love? Shouldn't we be teaching our children that God is the God of grace and mercy and love? You bet we should. That is in the Bible, 1 John 4. God is love. But if we only teach our children that side of God, we only give them a one-dimensional picture of God, then, then that's not an accurate, that's a lopsided view of God. We need to also communicate very carefully that God is a holy and righteous and just God, that He hates evil. He hates evil. To give them a one-sided view of God is to deceive them and set them up for disappointment or disillusionment later. God hates sin. He will severely punish those who reject His offer of grace in Jesus Christ. Consider this passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's similar language, isn't it? Depart from me. I never knew you. Away from me. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on that day that He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. That's in the Bible. So is this, Matthew 10.28. Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, some of you grew up in church. And as little ones, you heard mostly about the wrath of God and God's hatred for sin and that he was holy and righteous. And you got this view of God as kind of a cosmic cop. You know, just waiting to catch you doing something wrong so he could bring down the hammer on you. And then one day someone told you about the love of God and your heart just leaped and you embraced that. You said, thank you, God, that you're loving. And now someone like me comes along and says, yeah, but also remember that God is a God of righteousness and holiness. And you hear that. It reminds you of how you felt when you were growing up and your insides kind of clench up and it's uncomfortable for you. And I want you to know I understand that. I really do. Others of you grew up and the vision you got of God was that He was a God of love and and that Jesus loves me and and you just got that side of of Jesus. And then here I come along and say that Jesus is going to punish people one day and you're offended at that because it's not the picture that you had. And the challenge is to develop an accurate view of God. Based on this book, an accurate view of God based on the Word of God. And I submit that we're going to be spending all of eternity honing our view of God, understanding this this multi-sided, multi-dimensional being, our Creator God. He's not just one dimension, you know. He's both. He's holy and loving, the Bible says. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here in this nightmarish passage. He's saying this, not everybody who thinks they're saved is saved. Isn't that what he's saying? Some people are self-deceived. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we did all these wonderful things in your name. And I will say, I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship apart from me. 
Not everybody who claims to be born again is born again. Not everybody who professes to be a Christian is truly a Christian. That's what he's saying. It's possible to be self-deceived. You know, I read about a poll recently that stated, the results stated that 45% of Americans claim to be born again. 45%. So that's 100 million plus people. Now, I'm not God, okay? But I don't believe that for a minute. I mean, they claim it for sure, but genuinely? Genuinely? You know, Jesus always said that there would be few. Even in this same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, just a little bit earlier, he said, you know what? There's a broad way and a narrow way. And many people, most people are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And a few people are on the narrow road that leads to life. Few there be that find it, he said. You don't just wander onto the narrow road. You have to find it. Many are called, but few are chosen. So here's the question. How do you know? How do I know? How do you know if you're the real deal? How do I know if I'm genuinely born again? If it's possible to be deceived about that, if some people will experience their worst nightmare one day, I don't want to be there. How do I know that I'm on the narrow road, that I'm saved, that I'm genuinely born again? That's the question we want to consider today. And the Bible gives us some help. And there's a verse that sheds some light on this. I'd like you to read it with me. It's on your outline. It's going to appear on the screen. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Let's read this together. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? There's a test. Believe it or not, there's a test that you can take and from the results you can discern whether or not you are in the faith, whether you are what your true spiritual standing is with God. Anybody want to take the test? Some of you are like, no, (laughs) I don't want to know. Can you handle the truth? (laughs) Just reading this verse, I noticed a few things about this test. It's a self-test. It says examine yourselves. It's self-scoring. It doesn't say, you know, exchange papers with the person on your right, grade each other's paper. I'm not grading you. You're not grading me. You're not grading your neighbor. Self-scoring test. It's a test to see if you are in the faith, it says. And that's a classic phrase that describes being saved or being born again. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And I noticed that it's a pass-fail test. There's no grading on the curve. With this test, we either pass or we don't. You're either in the faith or you're not in the faith. Jesus either dwells in you or he does not. It's kind of like pregnancy. You can't be partially pregnant or kind of pregnant or 40% pregnant. You either are or you're not. And salvation is the same way. You are either in the faith or you're not in the faith at any given moment in time. That's your spiritual condition before God. You can't say I'm 40% saved or I'm kind of saved. It's a pass-fail kind of a test. I also noticed that the test questions aren't found here. I looked for them. I read that whole passage. 
They're actually sprinkled throughout a variety of passages in the New Testament, and particularly in the book of 1 John, a whole book written to help people know whether they are truly, genuinely born of God. So we're going to take the test together today. And maybe you're saying to yourself, why do I need to take this test? I've been saved for 30 years. Or maybe you're saying, you know, I prayed a prayer at summer camp back when I was 12. I'm saved. I threw a stick in the fire. You know, why do I need to take this test? And if you're saying that, that is great. That is awesome that you believe you know Christ. But I would advise you to take the test anyway. You know, as a pastoral team, we hope and pray that no one who calls New Life their church will get to Judgment Day one day and be surprised to find out that while they thought they were true believers, they really weren't and end up experiencing their worst nightmare. So let's do what it says here and let's examine ourselves. Now, before we do, I think this is interesting. When you... When you look through the New Testament, if you're trying to figure out whether or not you're really saved, one thing you never find in the New Testament, it never says, you know, try to go back and think about when you prayed that prayer and try to remember if you really meant it. It never says that. You can flip through the pages. You'll never find, you know, go back to when you were 12. Remember that summer camp. Remember that campfire. Try to remember if you were sincere when you... It doesn't say that. What it does say is that if you are genuinely born again, there will be evidence. There will be some evidence. It will show up. It has to because of what has happened in you at the moment of salvation. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. That's what the Bible writers would say. There's going to be evidence. And I looked through and found 12 different kinds of evidence of true salvation. But in the interest of time, I narrowed them down to the seven that appear most often. Okay? So we're going to take seven tests of true salvation. And this is not the time like to look over at your neighbor and see what they're writing. This is for you. Remember, it's self-scoring. Okay? Here we go. Test question number one. The first test of true salvation is called, I call it the transformation test. Something is different about you now if you are genuinely born again. Will you read with me 2 Corinthians 5.17 out loud? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Simply stated, when someone truly repents and bows their knee to Jesus Christ, things begin to change. They have to. They have to because that person has been given a new, transformed nature with new desires, new abilities. It's not that you become perfect overnight. Okay, Ain't none of us perfect. But there will be changes. This fundamental change in your nature expresses itself in inward and outward ways. New appetites, new outlooks, a new hope for your future. A new sense of security in God, new loves, for many people, new friends, a new way of treating people. When I look at my own life, I know that I'm born of God for a number of reasons, but one of them is because of the change in the way that I started treating people after I'd surrendered to Christ. Up to that point, 
I was a black belt in sarcasm. I mean, I was good. I could cut people with my words down to size. But after I surrendered to Christ, I just got disgusted with how sarcasm hurt people and demeaned people. My whole way of relating and treating people changed in a matter of a couple of days. Not because I'm so great, but because the Spirit of God in me changed something. There's got to be changes. There has to be for the truly born of God person. Jesus is the life transformer. And when we humble ourselves and repent and put our faith in Him, He begins to change us. Not all at once. Not always all at once. Sometimes it's a slow and gradual change. There will be change. So let me ask it like this. Is there something about you now that makes you different from how you used to be? Would anybody in your life affirm that? Yeah, Joe's different. Mary's different. Now, some of you grew up in church and you feel like you've known Jesus since you were in the crib and you struggle with this idea of change, you know. Let me put it differently for you. Is there something about you now that makes you different from the people around you who don't know God? Are you different from those around you who don't know God? You see, if you're laughing at the same jokes that everybody else is laughing at, entertaining yourself with the same movies everybody else is entertaining themselves with, if you have the same stinky attitude about the boss, if if there's no difference between you who claim to know God and the people around you who don't, that's revealing, isn't it? This is the transformation test. Is there something different about you? So go ahead and rate yourself on this. Put in a little rating there. Maybe you'd say, well, not really. There's not really a whole lot of change that I can point to. Or you could say, well, sometimes. Some of you would check, you know, definitely. There's definitely been a change. Okay? Test number two, the appetite test. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I'm smoking on that one. I can go up to the buffet and just shovel it in and... My appetite, well, we're actually talking about a different kind of appetite here. This is an appetite or a hunger for the Word of God. That's what true believers have, a hunger for God's Word. Read 1 Peter 2 aloud with me. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, this is one of the new things that Jesus creates within that person who is genuinely born again. A new appetite for God's Word. A hunger for spiritual food to nourish that new nature that God has put in you. What did Jesus say once? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Genuinely born-again people have a transformed nature that craves and hungers the truth of God's Word. They realize this is, the, this is the bread, this is the milk, this is the meat, this is the honey that my new nature needs. If indeed I have a transformed nature. So let me ask question two this way. Do you find that you often look forward to reading or hearing the Word of God? There's something in you that craves it. Is there something in you that longs to know more of the truth? After you've read or heard God's Word, do you often feel strengthened by it to make you stronger? So go ahead and score yourself on that one there. The appetite test. 
The third one I call the do the right thing test. You know, I've met some people who have twisted the teaching of grace and salvation through grace. And they say things like this. Well, I prayed that prayer many years ago. I accepted Jesus. I took Jesus as my personal Savior. I'm saved. So, what the heck? I can go out and live however I want. I can party on. I can sin and love it. I can just ignore God and ignore His call on my life. Hey, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. It's all good, right? And I think that the Bible writers, if they heard someone say that, they would go, oh, you'd better examine yourself because you might not be in the faith. Because truly born-again people have a desire to do the right thing, to obey God. They don't always do it 100% of the time. It's not the perfection of their life, but it is the direction of their life. Read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 aloud with me. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. How about 1 John 3, 9? No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, truly born-again Christ followers know that they've been set free from sin and the thought of going back and embracing that lifestyle again is repulsive to them. Salvation is from sin, the Bible says. Now, if you're squirming a little bit because you still sin, so do I. All of us do on occasion. One man said that when you truly become a Christian, you don't become sinless, but you do sin less. I think he was right. Even true Christians still sin on occasion. But it's different, isn't it? When I cave in, it, it's, it's a mess up. It's a, it's a lapse. It's a mistake. It's not a deliberate embracing of a sinful lifestyle. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's different for a truly born-again person. It is. It says... We cannot continue in sin. That's the, the meaning of this 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will deliberately choose to continue in a lifestyle of sin. They can't because God's seed remains in them. And God's seed, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. That divine resident that takes up residence in the heart of every true believer. And the Holy Spirit's first name is Holy. 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 He lives in us in part to produce holiness, righteousness, love for God. One of his main jobs is to help true believers sin less and to convict them when they do mess up. He does a good job of it. This is the do the right thing test. So let me ask you, do you take Jesus' command seriously? When the Word of God says, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, do you take that seriously? Keeping your heart free from hatred and anger and bitterness? When God draws some very clear lines about your sexual behavior and reserves sex 
for marriage. Do you take that seriously or do you have kind of a cavalier, whatever attitude about that? When Jesus says, hey, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, anything less than that is from the evil one. Do you find that that resonates with you in your heart? Like, I want to be an honest person of integrity. I really do. Let me ask test three this way. Do you find that you have a deep desire to live right and to obey God? Are there sins that used to seem fun but now seem disgusting to you? Do you find that when you cave into temptation, you hate it, you hate it? Are there sins that used to control you but no longer do as evidence that God, the Holy Spirit, is in your life? So go ahead and rate yourself on that one. Give yourself a check one of those options. If you need to create your own little box there, you can. Test number four. This is the owning up test. (laughs) And this one follows on the heels of what we just talked about. It refers to how true Christ followers respond when they do mess up. And we do. Simply stated, when truly born-again people mess up, they own up. When they mess up, they own up. You admit it when you do sin. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes you go through a season of denial or rationalizing it or trying to justify it, but eventually you get there. You own it. Show me someone who won't ever admit that they've done wrong, who's always defending themselves, And I'll show you someone who's probably not the real deal because that's how you get born again. By admitting your sins to Jesus. And that isn't meant to be just a one-time thing. That's a pattern that continues on and on through the life of a truly born-again person. Humbling ourselves. Owning up. Is this making any sense? Okay. Again, look at 1 John. Classic passage you read it with me first john one if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness some of you ought to put that on a plaque and hang it up in your home somewhere the wonderful cleansing to those who confess And those who confess are the ones who are born again. So here's the question. When you do sin, do you generally feel miserable about it? Do you long to be clean again before God? Do you find that you usually own up to your sin at some point? So give yourself a a rating there, a score. Now, test question number five is the love test. It's the love test. And you know how on quizzes sometimes the teacher will say, well, this one's worth more points. This one is worth like 100 points. The love test. Because Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the identifying mark. That's the birthmark of a born-again person is love. John said it this way in 1 John 3. Read it with me. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This is a biggie. If 
primary evidence of a changed, transformed heart is a love for the family of God. You'll love being with believers, worshiping with believers, sharing meals together, blessing them. Now, admittedly, some of us are kind of hard to love. We have our quirks. We have our idiosyncrasies. Let's be honest. Some of us are hard to love. But this, generally speaking, is the evidence of a born-again person. I I, want to hang out with my peeps, with my brothers and sisters. I, I like getting together with them. We share so much in common. We share the Holy Spirit in common. We share a love for God's Word in common. The love test. How would you answer question number five? Do you often find yourself wanting to do loving, kind things for others? Do you generally feel more comfortable around believers because of what you share in common with them? Do you feel a sense of connection? Has God put a love in your heart for His people? Do you usually look forward to gathering with them? The love test. How are you doing on that one? You can rate yourself there. Test question six is one that resonates with me personally, and it's called the discipline test or the chastening test. And this one makes sense because we as parents know that when our kids mess up, because we love them, we discipline them, right? And this test states that truly born-again people, when they mess up, receive chastening, receive discipline from their Heavenly Father. That's how they know they're in the family. God corrects you when you need it. Read Hebrews 12 with me, verses 6 and 8. The Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone that He accepts as a son. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. This one is so fresh to me. as It's as fresh as last week. When I experience some hardship in my life and the Holy Spirit who lives in me connected the dots between that hardship and a choice I had made and he said, this is the result of that. This is correction. This is chastising. It's hard. It's painful. But I want you to understand that when you make a choice like this, there's a lot at stake. It was a spanking from my Heavenly Father. How many of you have ever had a spanking from your Heavenly Father? So fun, isn't it? No, it's not fun. (laughs) No discipline for the present time seems pleasant, the writer says. But in the end, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God disciplines us because He loves us. And this verse says that He disciplines only His kids. He doesn't discipline the other kids like you and your kids, you know. You discipline your children. You don't discipline the neighbor's kids, although you'd like to admit it. And I would too at times. But no, I restrain myself like you do, and I discipline my children. Because I feel responsibility for my children and their behavior. And God feels the same way. He disciplines every son or daughter that he receives into his family. So while that was painful to be corrected by God, there was that hard side. There was also the side that said, you know what, you ought to thank God because this is showing you, you are in His family. You're one of His kids. It's the chastening, the discipline test. So let's answer this one. Do you find that you can rarely sin and get away with it? 
Have you ever experienced a spanking, chastening correction from your Heavenly Father when you knew you needed it? Okay. So rate yourself on that one. Then the last one. And this last test admittedly is very subjective. I think it's best when combined with the others. It's called the confirmation test. That's that inner voice, the inner assurance that you are indeed a child of God. That voice that says to you, you are mine. When, when we worship together like we were a few moments ago and you're just you know, lost in God and you hear that voice saying, you're one of mine. I love you. You're in the family. Read these passages with me. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. I think this one is most reliable when we see our lives. We take all this other, all these, you know, this test, and we measure up our lives, and we look at this, and we say, yes, that's in my life. Yeah, that's in my life. Yes, yes. Yes, I do have a love for the Scriptures. Yes, I do love believers. Yes. And then the Holy Spirit adds His yes and says, yes. You're one of the chosen ones of God, truly born again. So here's the final question. Does something inside of you regularly tell you that you are in God's family? Do you sense an inner confidence that God has accepted you? Okay? You can answer that one. So, how'd you do? Would you take a quiet moment and just reflect on your, look back through and just kind of reflect on your responses to the test? Just kind of look at it again. This is a time that I've been praying about that the Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of our hearts and minds about our true spiritual condition before God. Because I have to believe that in a crowd this size, there are people who you have been convinced, oh, I'm saved, it's all good, yeah. And when you stand before him on judgment day, he's going to say, I didn't know you. We didn't have a relationship. And that will be your worst nightmare come true. Obviously, all of our responses to this are somewhat subjective. There's no mathematical formula for grading this, but I've been asking God to use this little instrument to reveal to each and every one of us where we stand. And there's three boxes there at the end that I know kind of force the issue. One of them says, yeah, I'm born again. I know it. (laughs) The next one says, I don't think I am yet. The evidence isn't there. And then the third one says, I don't think I'm born again yet, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I I want to make sure. Now, I want to be real clear on something. If you honestly examined your life today and found that it falls short, okay, falls short, the answer is not to just try harder. Okay, you know, I'll try to go to church more and read the Bible more and be more loving and help old ladies across the street more. Those are evidences of a born-again heart, not the means to salvation. Do you see the difference? The Bible says it's not by our good works, our own efforts, that we become acceptable to God. So how do you become born again? 
I'd like us to let God speak for himself on this matter. And we've read a lot of scripture this morning, and we're going to read some more right now, and they're going to appear on the screen. So let's read these aloud together and let Jesus just speak for himself on how to be saved. Okay, here we go. Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. To the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if God is drawing you to His Son today, this all just made sense to you. That we become born again by repentance, turning from our sin, and placing our faith fully in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. Would you bow your heads with me? This is a very important time, and except for the worship team, I'm going to ask that no one move around for the next few moments. How many of you would raise your hand and say, Steve, I am born again. I mean, I passed the test. The evidence is there. I know I'm born again. The Spirit of God is telling me that. My life reflects it. I'm 100% no doubt. Would you lift your hands all over the room? I know I'm born again. I know I am. Praise God. (laughs) You can put your hands down. Many of you. And then how many of you would say, Steve, I'm not so sure. When I look at my life compared to these evidences, I don't see them in the measure that I think I should. I'm sensing that maybe I'm, I'm not. But I really want to be. I feel God drawing me to Jesus. I feel the Spirit convicting me of my sin. I don't, I don't want to get to Judgment Day and find out I've been relying on the wrong things. I, I want to nail that down. I want to make sure today that I am one of God's kids. Would you lift your hands? Lift your hands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. In the back, yeah, nine, ten, eleven. A lot of men, a lot of guys. 
Yeah, 12, 13. You can put your hands down. Only if you sense the Spirit of God drawing you to Jesus right now, convicting you of your sin, I ask you to repeat these words to the listening Lord right now. Dear Jesus, just whisper it there in your seat. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. Tell him, I believe in you. Tell him this, my life falls short of what you require and I know it. Can you admit that? Are you humble enough to admit that? My life falls short of what you require and I know it. Tell him that. Yet I'm hearing that you love me, Jesus. I believe you died for my sins on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I want today to be the day of my salvation. Just tell him that. I want today to be the day of my salvation. Jesus, I surrender to you as best I know how. I place my life in your hands. Come into my life. Tell him, change me. Change me. Forgive me. Be my leader. Be my master. Be my Lord. And then thank Him. Just thank Him. Just say, thank you, Jesus. If you prayed that with me, would you raise your hand way up high again? Just raise it way up high. Yeah. Many, many of you. Let God see your hands. Say, God, my hand is raised because today I am making sure I am one of yours. Anybody else? Just raise your hand high. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. You can put your hands down. Lord, I pray it's true. I pray that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that cross has been applied to the, to the account, to the records of several dozen people this weekend, Lord. And that they're saved. They're born again. They know you. And now on that day, instead of saying, I never knew you, you can say, I I knew you. (laughs) I know you. We have a relationship. A love relationship. I forgave your sins. May we become a church. May we be a church full of genuinely born again people who are pointing as many others as we can to the Savior. And we do thank you. You are the great and glorious God. And we know it's only born again people who can glorify you throughout all of eternity the way you deserve. So I pray you've added to that number today. And we worship you now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.